Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. I'm very happy to have David Eulen here to be involved with tonight's event. David Eulen is a book critic for the Los Angeles Times and is the editor of many books, including what I consider to be one of the best anthologies available writing in Los Angeles. His latest book is a wonderful, insightful, and stirring meditation entitled The Lost Art of Reading, Why Books Matter in a Distracted Time. And I'm sure you are all familiar with Ry Cooter, from his contributions to other artists' music, working with such folks as Beefheart and the Stones, and <laughs> to his incredible work and compositions on his solo recordings. His stunning soundtracks have had atmosphere to work by Vim Vendors and Walter Hill, and he has celebrated music he has celebrated music we may have missed out on with his project involving the Bonavista Social Club and his Chavez Ravine album. Now we get to hear Ry Cooter in a different way with his first published collection of stories, The Los Angeles Stories. So please help me welcome Ry Cooter and David Ewan. Okay. Can everybody hear back in the back? Chairs. Okay. Um, Thanks. Just try to get this chair boosted up if I can. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk for I don't know 30 minutes or 40 minutes or so until we get tired, and then um, and then uh, Rye will sign books, right? All right. That's right. So um, and we're going to have a free-form improvisational discussion, <coughs> I think. So uh, let me start. Just go ahead. Oh, okay. Let me start by asking you about. Um, let's start. We, we, I want to talk about the book mostly because that's what we're here for. That was right. very nicely right. done. Um, <laughs> how did you get into? How did you decide to start writing this book? I know that originally it grew out of a, a book that you brought on. Uh, you were you, that you self-published and were producing on and, and selling on tour. Um, right now, let's see if this is going to be better for me. Okay. Oh, good. Thank you. I could use this raise, but yeah, but I don't know how to do it. It's noisy. It's, it's real noisy. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. There we go. All right. So let's start with the the genesis of the book. Okay. Um, you you originally wrote it and self published it a couple of years ago and brought it out on tour with you. Is well, I thought I thought I might have uh, some shows to do, and and Nick Lowe and I were gonna tour around. We, we did a little of that, and it was. Uh, it seemed like it'd be a good idea to have something to sell, since everybody does, you know. And I, I didn't want to get into the T-shirt racket, you know. <laughs> and uh, people weren't buying CDs. I thought so well. And I'd written these stories, kind of off and on for a couple of years. So I thought maybe people would like to have a little book of stories. And we're going to Europe 
for instance, and uh, it, might, it might seem interesting. So I made a deal with this Chinese publisher to, to do this, and, and it came back. It was, everything was wrong with it. It was on magazine paper instead of book paper, so it was kind of greasy. And the cover was supposed to be this kind of brown, sort of russet brown, but it was like bright orange, you know? And there's all these typos and everything. So uh, that, I said, forget about it. Just withdraw this whole thing. But then Linnell here, who's here, said, no, let's see if we can't, uh, you know, find something to do with this. And she sent it to her friend Elaine in City Lights. I didn't hear back from Elaine for a long time. Then about eight months later, she came back and said, let's do this, you know, let's do a version. So we edited these things, streamlined them down, uh, fixed them up, you know, like you should, edit like, like a song you would do, you know, take out the stuff that's, by that time I could see. It takes time to do this work, I discovered. It's not like writing a four minute song you can do in a hurry. You know. <laughs> yeah, but it takes time to record a four-minute song. About four minutes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a whole different thing. <laughs> well, I want to ask you about that because yeah. I think it is a different thing, but I'm interested in the way that, that they relate. I mean, yeah. the, the, the kind of relationship of the stories in this book mm -hmm. to the kind of um, the perspective of a record like Chavez Ravine sure. or, or the, the trilogy, right? That, right. That, you know, uh, I'm curious about how those things relate. Partly what you're looking at is Los Angeles. Partly what you're looking at is kind of... Um, the past, or things that are uh, things that are lost, or things that could be lost. Sure. I'm curious about what your thoughts are on on those things and how they all emerge in the work. Those things, the things that are lost, the things that are lost. <laughs> well, I happen to like I anybody would would know. I happen to like these uh, these musical styles that we now think of as Americana. You know, they call them. Uh, whatever they call them, traditional folk, it's, it's whatever word is in fashion, but the, uh, the stuff that I liked when I was a little kid, I still like. And the records I, I used to like, I still like. That's, that's hillbilly music and blues. And um, it seems like it's everything up to about 1970. <laughs> or 1965 <laughs> or so. If you want to be, you know, kind of liberal about it. I don't know where the cutoff quite is. But, um, and at this point, you know, since, since you can't go back in time, you know, none of us can. I used to want to be a, a, the rhythm guitar player for Ray Price. That never happened. Then I wanted to be a Tex-Mex bajo sexto player and have a pickup truck, you know, and drive from place to place and play in bars. Thank God that never happened. <laughs> That's a hard life. So um, you can't go back. And you can't be those people, and we can't return to that time, even though the music is very often a, for me, it's at least it's a, uh, it's a door that I can open anytime I want, you know, and I can leave and listen to the record, and I do, uh, or play the stuff as best I can, which I've learned to do over all these years, and, and convince myself that for the moment, you know, something's happening, uh, it's linking me up to these ideas. But writing these stories is, is much more intensive. See, and that's page after page and person after person and these characters come up and the street names and the, and the, uh, the way of speaking. Some of, these, some of these people in the stories are 
very particular, you know, the hillbillies or aircraft workers or whatever they are, dental technician in one case, who's a very particular kind of cat, you know. And people I remember are mixed in so that some of these memories are real enough, they're realistic for me so I can line them up or link them with some uh, fictional character and they can have a conversation or some kind of interaction that feels right to me because part of it at least is true. And by the time you do this, I found, you believe it. Absolutely. I'm convinced. And I think that's, that's the nicest part of it, you know. Because for me, it just does, it's, it's a tremendous uh, thing. After writing one of these, or during, even better, during writing one of these. And when it's done, that's like, okay, now what? But man, when you're in the middle of it, it's a great thing. It's really dynamic. I really like it. And then I can look at photographs, you know, and be sure I'm right. And then some people have complained that um, I, sent, I sent the story about the uh, streetcar conductor to a streetcar expert who lives downtown. And this guy knows everything about Los Angeles uh, rapid transit in those days. And he said, you, you have to promise me that nothing bad will happen to the conductor or the motorman. <laughs> Uh, the, my friends will not like it if something happens to the motorman. I said, nothing's going to happen to him, but, but what about this, these words in nomenclature, you know? You don't say we washed the streetcar. We shoved it through the wash rack. Okay, and how do you accelerate? Do you step on the gas? What do you do? No! So you notch the controller out. Okay. So you have to know these things. And then another friend, Chris Drakwitz, was horrified when I said 78 records in 12-inch sleeves. Mm -hmm. He just, <laughs> these are not 12 inches. So, oh my God, that's right, they're eight inches. He just, that's it, to dismiss the whole thing. <laughs> so then I realized you really have to do a little more work, and that's what I got to do when we did this editing job for City Lights. did a little more work, and then there's more work to be done all the time. You can always make it better, you know. Well, let's talk about it, <clears throat> a little bit about the stories. I want to um, ask you if, if you can tell, talk about the city directory. The first story in the book involves a guy takes place in 1940 in downtown uh, Bunker Hill area, and it involves a guy who collects information for the, the old city directories, which they, uh, they used to have. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about, about that. I should have brought it. Damn it. It's a great big book, you know, like huge, like a giant early dictionary. And, and you have one. You have I do. This, yeah. this friend of mine's a garage sale guy, found this 1931 city directory, Los Angeles. And everybody in Los Angeles is in this directory, pretty much, I'd say. And they, they didn't ha all have phones, so it's not about telephones, but their addresses there, their job, their husband or wife, or their family members, and they have like 229 and a quarter. That's one family member, 229 and a half. That's another family member, you know. And what's their job at Pants Presser, which is P-N-T-S-P-R-S, or something like that, or P-S-R, Pants Presser. And I calculated there's more, there were more, in 1931, this was the most common job. There were more pants pressers than lawyers, <laughs> or doctors, or, or uh, cab drivers or anything like this. It's an enormous amount of pants pressing. Because the cloth didn't have drip dry like we have now or, or synthetic, synthetic fabrics that don't need pressing. And if you went out on the street without a good crease, you know, you look like hell. And nobody would take you seriously. 
And then they had, it was organized, um, of course, not only alphabetically, but by apartment house names, which were sensational, by, by churches, most of which don't exist anymore. The Church of the Rapid Bible and the Firstborn, that's one of them, down on 33rd. You know, what was their doctrine, I wonder? And the Ku Klux Klan had an address on Spring Street and a phone. You could call up the Klan down on Spring Street, you know. So uh, I started reading this book page by page. It took about a year to get through it. And pretty soon you get the feel of the names and the jobs. And I had a big map, 1941 map of LA, so I looked at where some of these people lived. There was two Hispanic doctors in Los Angeles, and there was a Mexican hospital. There were like 18 Chinese dentists. It's amazing. Yeah, it's I had a lot of fun with that book. <laughs> it's interesting because it gives yeah. you this sense of how the city was as opposed mm -hmm. to how the city is now. Yeah, and it helps really, I, I, for you as a writer, it must have really helped you create the atmosphere of those Oh, stories. it was essential. Yeah. If I didn't know, if I didn't like a name I was using, I'd just go through the book until I found it. I found a policeman whose name was uh, Bill Spangler. So I called him Bitter Bill Spangler. You know, and he gave his badge number. He was a motorcycle cop, so I, you know, it's a lot more interesting than, you know, thinking you're going to dream all this up yourself. You know, you just can't get quite out there enough. You know, you can't go quite into the texture of it enough. But this book was, it was tremendously good. So, in terms of the writing of the stories, you go through, um, you're saying it's, it's more, it's sort of a denser, more difficult thing for you than, than writing the songs in some way. Right? Well, it's denser for sure. That as far as the difficulty is concerned, you just have to, I had to get into it. I had to do it. I'd never done it before. Right. First of all, I didn't expect to show these to anybody. So they had no intention of, uh, you know, converting it into something. It was just f for fun and, and, uh, I found I liked it, so I liked to get up early in the morning and, and just do it for a while. Right. But then, when the idea came up, well, you make a decision now. If city Lights in particular means you're there, like in a store and alongside all these other people, you know, some of whom are great. What about that? So I wasn't so sure I'd write right off. You know, I thought maybe that's a mistake, you know. And you should just leave it alone. <laughs> so what pushed you over the edge? <laughs> <laughs> well, enough friends said, no, don't, don't say that. Try it. And if you don't like it, you don't have to do it again. But they all liked it, and people were very encouraging and said, we think this is good, so go ahead already. You know, why worry about it? Stop worrying. It was a good thing. And it wasn't your first foray, right? Because you had done the novella that went with oh, yeah. Flathead, sure. which was uh, the 2008 record. That came with mm -hmm. that. was a, almost a 100-page piece of fiction. Yeah, I, well, I thought that was terrific. Nobody accepted it. It was weird. Big ants and giant ants in the desert and all that. Some of these films, you know, they get to be so uh, real to you that you want to just keep it going. So the, the idea of the giant ants was one of those things. And space travelers, I think, is great, especially in Los Angeles. Right. You know. But at what point did you, yeah, I mean, in terms of putting a long piece of fiction in a record, did that, mm -hmm. that seems to me to be a more radical idea than writing yeah. a collection of short right. stories. Right. Well, I thought the songs were so odd that they had no context for a listener. Not, or, or, or so little of a context that ought to have something to back them up. And then I thought, well, hey, write the story of this guy, Cash Buck, and then people will accept it and believe it. <laughs> you know, and, uh, and I thought, well, won't that be great? 
<laughs> and the record company looked at this and said, well, you want us to release this as a book and a record is very expensive package. We can't do that. Uh, let us release this as only the music. And I said, well, then it's almost useless, you know. Unless somebody is just such an avid fan of certain things, I don't know why they would bother. So they made a, they didn't make enough of them, and a lot of people never read it or heard it, which is too bad, but it's very, very good. And can you still get it? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if you can. So um, the, all the stories in the book have, or not all, but many of the stories in the book have a kind of... Um, Crime undertone, mm. you know. There's uh, things happen. Sure. Maybe they're crimes, maybe not. There's right. you know some odd coincidences or whatever. But there's always in, in some of the stories, and in some of the stories there is outright kind of crime. There's murders. Yeah. Sure, there's all sure. kinds okay. of things. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about that. As a <laughs> <laughs> well, I like crime stories, you know. I mean, um, in L.A., crime stories are a terrific. It's a, it was great when I first found these kinds of things when I was in junior high school. I thought that's that's what I that's the way it should be. Uh, L.A comes across as a crime scene. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and if you look at these police photographs in, from back in the day, if you see any of these, that's certainly right. I mean, it certainly looks totally true and uh, real fascinating. And the places where Chandler was good, he, he would walk you down the street and walk you up the stairs in the Belfont building and you walk down to the end of the hallway and the numismatist is there. I, don't, I just don't know what more you can ask. And um, and there's others, of course, right, right. lots of others, and not just in L.A. Of course, you know, I'm a big Dominic Stansbury fan, although I don't see any here. And that's San Francisco, but I mean, it's it's a natural problem solving is good. You know, you here comes somebody walking, driving, something happens, and then that's a problem they have to solve. Right. It's a simple idea, and it doesn't have to be too terrible. And some of these guys in the story are not so smart and they don't they're not geniuses like crime solvers you know they're not like that they're just ordinary people who uh, stumble into things and that maybe they figure it out and maybe they don't it's like an ozu film as far as i'm concerned if i may be so bold as to say in what sense can you well you <coughs> enter the thing as the story or the the the, the, the it's like water is 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 uh, moving along so you jump in with your little boat and you ride for a while and things occur and action takes place and then at a certain point you beach your little boat and you get off but the water just keeps going. That's what that Ozu principle is as far right. as I'm concerned. It's not a beginning, middle, and end all the time. It's not always resolved, you know, like the, the genius detective like in a Ross McDonald story, which I really like those stories, but I mean that guy's just too smart. <laughs> Lou Archer, you're just going to solve every little thing and every tiny little thread is going to be tied up so neat at the end. And uh, I just, the way I see it, these kind of people, especially in this time and place, they don't have the access to technology, they're not busy on the internet, like collecting and sifting through like endless mountains of information hardly at all. They might make a telephone call once a week. So not every in event in their lives is precipitated by a cell phone call that comes in and sets them in motion, you know, like in movies now. So they just sort of wander around. Some of them are musicians and they wander around, uh, which is something I know something about. You bring in real characters. I mean, <clears throat> various uh, bluesmen, various musicians, mm -hmm. uh, people, so, so that, you know, that peppers the stories and gives them a kind of 
uh, a realistic flavor. Um, I wonder if you can talk about bringing uh, sure. about those kind of things. <laughs> well, I know something about musicians. Also, I have spent a great deal of time and for years reading um, whatever I could find, uh, oral history in particular, of, of, and in particular jazz musicians who are always real fascinating, bebop guys, swing players, and, and stuff you hear on Chuck Cecil's program on the, on the jazz station in the weekend mornings. These, these, he's done all these interviews with these guys, most of them now did. You hear them describe these events in this mundane way. It's so dry and boring. The most fantastic things happen is, well, you know, it was a strange, it, was, it wasn't a very good session, it wasn't, we didn't like the song, then it became a hit, and uh, so I listen to that rhythm of the talk, and, and this, the country guys, the same thing, the old-time hillbillies, how they looked at this work that they did, this music, you know, and how they just took it in stride, and they just, they weren't uh, heroes, and they weren't, um, the world wasn't at their feet, you see. John Lee Hooker could have come to Central Avenue in this story. He could have walked into that bar where he goes in in the story. He, he was just coming off of Detroit. He was hot in Detroit. No one had heard of him in those years. And so it's quite likely that he wandered into some joint on Central Avenue just to see if anybody knew him, just to see what he might do for an evening. It, it wasn't such a great big deal like it is now. Mm -hmm. You know, the cars pull up and people start making cell calls. Oh, John Lee Hooker's over here. You know. Um, all of a sudden, there's a huge crowd, you know. It wouldn't, wouldn't like that then. It was small, it was little, you know, and, and Merle Travis was in a joint in Los Feliz right around here called the Riverside Rancho. He, all often with Joe Mavis and people like that. My God, the gods of country guitar. They were right here, right, right a few blocks from here, but not anymore. So that's fun to do, you know. It's fun to speculate on what musicians are saying, what they have to eat. Then what happens? Then they get, then some little situation comes up, you know. But at least I know something about it, right? right, right. I, I, I kind of have a handle on that. Right, and sometimes it's a cameo, like John Lee Hooker. Yeah. And sometimes with Johnny Ace, it's a bigger thing in the story, you know? Yeah, this, the idea that Johnny Ace committed suicide is ridiculous, obviously. He did no such thing. It's preposterous. So I try to debunk that, which is fun to do. Um, and uh, shot himself playing Russian Let's Absurd. Man has a number one record and he plays Russian lead. I don't think so. So the question is, well, who, who shot him? And we don't know. We never will find out. It's like, who set Sam Cooke up? We never find out. So I like the Sam Cooke things too. There's too much tire tracks over that, but Johnny Ace now. <laughs> so I invented another character to be Johnny. And the guy in the story, the tailor, wants so badly to figure out and then later that car mechanic wants to figure out who who got him and he tries to have a seance with him and the guy comes back in a dream but he still doesn't know the answer i like that idea too in the stories they're you know they're linked right i mean mm -hmm. in a loose sort of way yeah. characters come up or situations come up the johnny ace thing etc <laughs> and i wondered in terms of thinking about how you how you put them together at what point uh, did, was that just sort of how they evolved yes yeah, how they thinking? evolved sure because because if if a character's good and you like it in this story then they may have a use over here see and they may have something more to say like billy tipton may come back uh, in a, in a, again, in another seance, I, I hope people will buy that, you know, for a dollar. <laughs> Keep having these seances. <laughs> but it was a big thing in those days, by the way, in, in old L.A. They were very popular, you know, Ouija boards and seances, and there was a whole scene with that. And uh, spirituality on that kind of level, street spirituality is good. But um, 
the, the Billy Tipton character, I got so fascinated about her that I just couldn't leave it alone. Right. Yeah. Do you want to tell them a little bit about the character? Well, does anybody here know who Billy Tipton was? Her? her yeah. Him? Yeah. Both? Herm. Herm. Was, this, was a woman who had a musical career in the 30s, 40s, 50s, or more like the 40s, I guess, 50s, uh, dressed as a man, worked as a man, was married a couple of times, uh, and was a cocktail piano player. And traveled all through the, the Pacific uh, Western states, ended up in Spokane, Washington. Um, it was an astonishing story, the greatest musical story. Absolutely, I think is great. And you can get the book and it's called Suits Me. <laughs> it's, a, it's a really good book and it's a really, uh, she's real fascinating. And you can get her record, she made one album, Cocktail Piano Music. Uh, Billy Tipton plays hi-fi. And she's there at the piano looking up and these two kind of girls are draped over the piano. It's incredibly good. And weird stereo bouncing back and forth sort of sound. So that's available on Amazon. <laughs> but I would certainly recommend that biography. It certainly is good. You're working uh, well, well, before the, the book. The book takes place um, between 1940 and 1959. Yeah. Um, and just going back to sort of what we were talking about at the beginning, what uh, that time period is very specific. You've been talking mm -hmm. about how it was simpler. There was mm -hmm. less. There was less noise. Less cultural mm -hmm. noise. Right. right. True. Um, what about the? And also, that was also the period you were growing up in mm -hmm. Los Angeles. A little later than 1940. But what about that period? Is uh, what's the appeal of writing? Going back to that period in the writing. Oh. <clears throat> Well, if you like the music, then you like the time and the place then. What L.A. looked like, what I remember, Pershing Square. I was pretty little and going up to Bunker Hill in this, and so I can recall that, but probably more of the memories are formed by these, all these black and white photographs and the movies themselves. You know, we can watch Criss Cross and, and Crime Wave with Sterling Hayden and uh, uh, Armored Car Robbery with William Talmadge is awesome. Uh, Gilmore Field. There's Charles McGraw right there. So you can keep looking at these things and study these things. Uh, of course, um, um, Asphalt Jungle was filmed downtown. They say it's some Midwestern city, but it's, it sure isn't. So, But uh, I don't know. It's just something I like to ponder over, you know. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's, it's, and the cars and the music, it's the whole thing, it's the environment and the, and the, mostly to do with the conversation and the talk. Because mostly what I like is dialogue. Right. I'm not so much for action, but uh, um, there's like Walter Hill, the director, I used to work for him and do music for him and he used to tell me, say, well, when it's an action sequence you don't do very well, you're not trained in the geometry of these things. So, okay, Walter said, the, I guess you're right, you know, you have to learn to live with these things. So, but the dialogue, that's fun, you know, and the way they talk back then, if you went to East L.A. and you were in the Latin neighborhoods, or Chicano neighborhoods, or down in Central Avenue, what people might have talked like, Chinese bartenders, and I can hear this, 
And it may be right and it may be wrong, but that's it's what I think it is. I get to say what I think. Right, that's the beauty of being be. a writer, right? Yeah, you know. that's right. Uh, it also is sort of a kind of historical recreation in a way. I mean, what you've done a little bit with, say, with a record like Chavez Ravine, mm -hmm. you know, there, I mean, I see these connections between these things because you're kind of yeah. telling stories that are lost. This goes back to the things that are lost. You're telling stories that are lost or that people don't know uh, or that aren't as prominent as they should be. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that as a motivation to tell these stories, both in terms terms of, of that record and in terms of this book. The, again, the lost type thing. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Well, when I was going to do the Chavez Ravine record, then I thought, I didn't live there and I'm not Hispanic and I don't, I'm not part of that neighborhood, so I need people to help me speak about that. And so I called Lalo Guerrero up, who's the Mr. Chicano music man. He was one of the Pachuco band leaders of back in those days. And he was, he was old at this time, it was 2004 this was. And he was living in Palm Springs, so I called him up and I asked him and I said, uh, you remember the Chavez Ravine story? And he said, certainly. And I said, did you know anybody up there? And he said, yeah, two uh, boxers, both with the name Chavez, they were not related, I don't think. Carlos and Favela Chavez were friends of Lalo's because he liked boxing. So I said, all right, the boxer is the metaphor we we're looking for here. You know, man fights with honor, uh, does his very best, you know, to the death. But there's a low blows coming, and when it hits him, he's down and out, and that's the end. Your life can change at the end of one punch, as they say. Can you do that in Spanish? And because uh, it, it will help us show the story about the, the dirty pool that went on there, the, the inside the inside, the low blows, the b below the belt stuff, which he understood that. And of course, he said, give me a little time. He called me in an hour. <laughs> <laughs> On the cell phone, I was driving back from Palm Springs at that point, and he said, I, I pulled over the side of the road, and he says, I got something here. And he says, and he sings it to me in Spanish. He says, that's incredible. That took you an hour to do. <laughs> yes, I had a little trouble. <laughs> God almighty. So we got in the studio, recorded that. Flaco Jimenez came from Texas. We got a little band together. And Chuco Suaves, which was his, his best Pachuco song, about how slick all the Pachuco brothers are and how they dance and this sort of rumba beat thing. And we did a version of that and one other. And then uh, and we called Don Tosti, who was the other Pachuco guy. He had Marijuana Boogie and, and others, I think, were, 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 might have been one of his. And I told him, I said, you know, you're a hipster. You talk that old Calo Spanish. Now you need to, to uh, be the, the voice of the space alien who comes down to warn the people of Chavez Ravine that they're going to be invaded by these, by forces beyond their control and their homes will be taken and this and that's going to happen to them. So he wrote out all this slang talk in Spanish that he was going to do and I brought the track and he was not feeling so good he, he was sick and, and we recorded him in his house so very soon after this Lalo had died very soon after that Don Tosti died so there went the, any possibility of, of, of authentic true uh, uh, recreation right there they're gone and they take it with them and that is the end of that and if I hadn't have come to them right about then had this idea I'm glad that I did. I wouldn't have. We never would have heard this. Those were the last sessions for these two guys, and we went on from there. And and I was at that point. I was encouraged to.
keep doing it because I could see that there was some place to go with these two guys as the starting point, you know. But uh, I mean, these things get away from you very easily, you know. The sound, the the sound of the the Spanish in the mouth, even of with Lalo, mm -hmm. the pronunciation, the way this old man, heroic guy, kind of is singing these things. I mean, you believe it, it's absolutely real and true. Like those Cubans in Havana. Mm -hmm. Well, when they're gone, that's it. You never will hear that again. You cannot get that quality back. So I've been seeing so much of this in my lifetime in music, I couldn't even tell you. With the Hawaiians and Mexicans and everybody, just adios again, muchachos. <laughs> so I, I, I do think the nice thing about writing these stories is, the truth is, I don't have to rely on that. Right. It's hard in music if you want reality, you have to have people help you achieve it, but in the stories, geez, you know, no such thing. Right. You're making right. up. Just go ahead with it. Yeah. Right. You get your city directory and you go right. from there, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you're writing more stories now. Oh, yeah. You want to talk, can you talk a little bit about that? Well, it's just more of the same kind of thing, only they're longer and there's more about musicians. Um, A.P. Carter of the famous Carter family there was A.B., his wife Sarah, and niece, I think it was niece, or cousin, Maybell, the original three Carter family. So he had a strange life and he had a dark side. So I have a, a long story where he disappears because he's sick and tired of working for Ralph Peer and, and making hit country records in the 30s and takes off on a voyage. <laughs> so there's no evidence of what he did at that time except that he did take off. He came here to Los Angeles, you know, so that's fun to think about. So I have him, this sort of God-fearing Baptist, you know, hill country man encountering jazz musicians and circus performers and all kinds of people totally out of it. It's like going to Mars for him it would be. Right. Yeah, so uh, he gets in scrapes, you know, and things happen. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what is it about Los? I mean, I know you were you were raised in Santa Monica. What is it about Los Angeles? Because if, if Carter comes to Los Angeles, yeah. the stories are all about Los Angeles. Sure. I mean, uh, I'm curious your take on that. Well, I don't know. I mean, when you're from a place, I guess you get to be interested in it, and there's so much to be interested in here. It seems to me, and the, and I started by liking the music quite a lot, and when I was a kid and in, in uh, grammar school, and in 1955, boy. The hillbilly radio station in Pasadena played Johnny Cash, Hay Porter, and stuff like that. I thought, man, Ray Price later on. It was incredible. Uh, Joe Mafis and all those guys. Speedy West on the steel. Who are those people? And so you get fascinated, you know? You just, and it's, it's, I guess I still am. I mean, it's, uh, it's our town. What's left of it. <laughs> All right. Well, I want to thank you for the conversation. I think uh, it's been fascinating. Thank you. And um, right here. Okay. Thank you. So I have no idea how the book signing is going to go. So I'm going to. Well, I'll just sit here. And I'm going to turn that over to Steve. <clears throat> I'm here, I may as well sit here and sign them. Huh? Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Um, here, What's left of LA? Yeah. Do you want to answer one last question? Yeah, how do you mean that? Well, I was going to one last question. What do you, what do you, what do you think, what are you thinking of? Well, I'm 
thinking of, I guess, the way the city has architecturally been developed or not developed or, or so, but I'm not a native Alec person, so. Well, she's asking what, what, how do you characterize, it might be said, Los Angeles now instead of back then, and what's the change, and you're saying sort of, what do we have now? I mean, it's what kind of an environment is it now? Is that what you're saying? I see LA now, you know, yeah. LAPD, police brutality. I mean, you oh, know, that stuff, yeah. stuff, yeah. Yeah, sure. So I'm just wondering what it, yeah. what it is for you. Uh -huh. Well, to me, it's uh, what I look out and see when I travel around and drive around, what I'm struck with is the, uh, the extent to which it's been really converted into this. When they thought up malls and shopping opportunities, you know, this was done in the 50s with uh, certain communities, Westchester, and they thought they would create these suburban enclaves of commerce, you know, and the downtown started to weaken and all that, and, uh, and, they, and they created opportunities for people to shop because this was looked upon as a good thing, you know, as recreation and that, and then it turned into what we have now. It's this bright, you know, glittery kind of thing, uh, overdeveloped uh, transactional lifestyle, you know, or you, you, uh, as far as I'm concerned. So loss of community. Well, that's true. That's the Chavez Ravine story kind of tells this too, because if you have a neighborhood, say, and you like this one maybe even, and you have a little coffee shop and people have been, let's say they've been going there, this kind of be rare now, or a bookstore that they go to, perhaps like this one's been there for a while. And people get used to it and know the people that run it and they like to go there and they feel good there. Comfortable even. And then along comes some chain, see, because they've got the inside, you know, they're looking for real estate opportunities and they're looking for demographics and they come in and they open up across the street and there goes that little coffee shop or, or market and uh, those relationships that you have and if you grew up that way then the, the patterns of your own life you know are disrupted and uh, they're never the same and it's only obvious you know that this happens every day I mean you can go away from LA come back two weeks later and not recognize whole areas you know I used to go on tour as a musician come back and say what the hell happened here in Santa Monica what used to be there? I can't even remember, you know. We don't even have any bookstores in Santa Monica, for Christ's sakes. Except Barnes and Noble, and what's that going to do? It's diet, books, and cancer cures and whatnot. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Anyway, don't ask me, because I'm, I'm, no, I'm, I'm pissed off all the time. Oh. Yeah, sure. Communities were smaller or, or more distinct, maybe. You know, the people in Chavez Ravine would have told you, if you watch this documentary film that Don Normark made, we loved the way we lived. People said we were poor. They called us poor. Uh, slum. Oh, gosh, you know, outside toilet. Oh, heaven forbid. We thought it was great, you see, or, uh, or something like that. And, and I didn't like Santa Monica when I was a little kid because I just thought it was boring. It was just this grid and the aircraft uh, thing. Now I appreciate it more now. Although now it's completely changed. And I got a Whole Foods on every corner. <laughs> you have to go there. You know what? Police come out and say, you haven't been, been to Whole Foods in two weeks. <laughs> I'm gonna, guy writes a ticket, that'll be $800. <laughs> May I ask um, one more question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you said that you're going to write more stories and um, next time it's going to be about musicians. 
That's that's pretty much true. Yeah, one guy is a TV game show host, though, a movie host. Uh, 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 ben Hunter, you remember him? I have Ben Hunter getting in all kinds of trouble. He was called the Ben Hunter matinee on Saturdays. He showed films, black and white films. Where was I? I, I was I was there for the late show. Now, this Ben Hunter was Saturday afternoon with his dog. <laughs> oh, yeah, he was a good good old guy, Ben Hunter. Well, I wanted to ask him about Van Dyke Parks. Well, we can talk about that a little later. Well, <laughs> <laughs> all right. I better I better do my book signing and autographing. Huh? Sounds good. Okay. Yeah, let's give Rod Cooter and Dave Ewan both a great hand. Good. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.